A little boy was painting a picture at school and his uh, teacher said to him, tell me about your picture. I'm painting a picture of God, he said. But the teacher said, but no one knows what God looks like. Well, he will when I'm finished, he said. <laughs> well, there was another ambitious artist by the name of Michelangelo and uh, he also tried to paint a visual representation of God. And you can still see his beautiful fresco painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And it's called The Creation of Adam. It's a really famous work of art, if you remember. It's this picture of God sitting on a cloud and reaching out his finger to touch the finger of, of Adam. And, uh, but you know, it pictures God as a kind of burly old man. <laughs> it looks a bit like Santa Claus on muscle pills. <laughs> <laughs> And for centuries, that famous painting has shaped many people's mental image of God. But no matter how gifted the artist is, the God we worship is not illustratable. Our God is infinite, he's invisible and incomprehensible. There's an impenetrable mystery and vastness about God that can never be described by a visual image or a work of art. There were reasons why the Hebrew tabernacle in the wilderness and the Holy of Holies had, and that the temple had no windows. A God who can be physically pictured or visualized is no longer God. And that's why the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, verse 18, asks the question, to whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? And the answer to those questions is that there is no graven image, there is no statue, there is no artist's canvas that can capture the incomparable, invisible, and unfathomable essence of God. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 16b, that God is immortal and lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. Or is that well-known hymn that we Saying earlier beautifully puts it, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. So if God cannot be pictured or captured by visual images, how can we get a valid idea of God and what he's like? Of course, the Bible itself didn't come with illustrations. <laughs> Even the illustrated versions of the Bible don't attempt to draw a picture of God himself. The Bible has come to us with words, not pictures. It may be true that sometimes a, a picture is worth a thousand words, but when it comes to describing the mystery of God, pictures can only misconstrue or diminish or, or distort the reality that is God. But words in themselves have a, a different kind of descriptive power. It's only words that can really begin to describe the unmeasurable, impenetrable mystery that is God. And that's why we have the Bible, the Word of God, instead of a picture book to tell us what God is like. So today we're going to look at one of the Psalms in the Bible, a Psalm of David, Psalm 139. And it's one of the most profound and eloquent writings ever written about the mysterious nature of God and his inexplicable love for you and me. 
So we can read David's Psalm 139 as poetry because it is a beautiful poem, but we can also pray it as a prayer because it is an amazing prayer as well. So there's four parts to it, or four paragraphs of six verses each. And in each paragraph, David meditates on something amazing about the mystery of God and also about how closely and deeply involved God wants to be with us. So in the first paragraph, David meditates on the mystery of God's omniscience, God's all-embracing knowledge, and how completely God knows absolutely everything about David. So in verses 1 to 6, David says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So David here describes how God sees and knows absolutely everything about him personally. His words, his actions, even his thoughts and his attitudes. Nothing is hidden from God. And that's also true for you and me. God is an all-knowing, omniscient God who sees and knows absolutely every single detail about us. Not only what you do and where you go, but what you think and even what you're You'll say before you say it. God has his eye on it all. Now, for modern-day people like us uh, who value our freedom and our privacy, um, these verses may seem a bit uncomfortable. Even though, you know, ironically, we've learned to tolerate video surveillance in our stores and on our street corners and cameras recording all our comings and goings. I know some folks even have computer apps in their homes that listen in on their conversations. (laughs) Alexa? (laughs) Well, like the characters in George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984, who were constantly being monitored by the thought police, who could read their thoughts, and and constantly being watched by Big Brother. In the same way, we too might feel oppressed by such complete surveillance by God in our lives. God doesn't just know what we think, he understands what we think. He knows the hidden motives and agendas behind all our thought processes. And he understands you better than you understand yourself. So this should make us wonder how our thoughts and words might change if we really believe this. Well, David believed it. He says in verse 5, You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Now, some people have thought that David was actually feeling hounded here, or even stifled by God. That he's, that he's saying, Lord, you're, you're dogging my footsteps here. I feel like you're, you're breathing down my neck. But the verb that David uses here for you hem me in can also mean you guard me or you surround me for my protection. And I think that's what David means. He's not threatened by God's all-embracing knowledge of him. He welcomes it, actually, as a refuge. And that's why he can say in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. He's not resenting the all-seeing eye of 
of God. Instead, he's amazed and he's grateful for God's supernatural intelligence that's far beyond anything he can imagine. And he's also blown away to know that the God of all creation isn't satisfied with just ruling up there, ruling and reigning in heaven, but that God actually wants to have an intimate, personal relationship with him down here at the deepest level. So David's verses in this first paragraph picture God's love and just how close God really wants to be with us. The next paragraph, verses 7 to 12, David meditates on God's inescapable presence, the mystery of his omnipresence. So listen to verses 7 to 12. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So this sounds again a bit like uh, David's feeling an urge to escape from God's inescapable presence, or as if he wants to run away from the intimacy that God wants to have with him. Like he's looking for somewhere in the universe to escape God and be alone. Where can I go from your spirit, he says. Where can I flee from your presence? Maybe there's times you've felt like that yourself. <laughs> like there's nowhere to run from God, nowhere to hide. You know, Adam and Eve in the garden tried to hide from God. <laughs> they found it impossible. Jonah tried to run from God, but he found God inescapable. So whether it's on the, the far side of the sea or in the, the depths of the earth or the heights of outer space or in the recesses of our own mind, God has the ability to reach us wherever we are. As God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, 23-24, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Again, some have thought that David was feeling hounded by God, and that he even considers hiding himself from God in the darkness of night. When he says in verse 11, I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. But I think David's great fear here is not of being found by God or found out by God, but actually of not being found. He's afraid that he may find himself in some situation so dire, some depression so dark, or some despair so deep that he will lose his precious assurance of God's presence in his life. So in verse 12, he reassures himself, saying, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. And it's true. No matter how dark your situation, God has night vision. Right? He sees your situation, and he will be a very present help indeed. So David's response to God's inescapable presence is the same as his response to God's all-embracing knowledge. It's a response of gratitude. 
David is thankful. He's saying, whatever happens, wherever I'm at, I can always depend on God being there for me. It's sort of like what King George VI famously said during World War II, when he said, put your hand in the hand of God. That will be better than light and safer than a known way. So David's been meditating on God's omniscience and God's omnipresence. And now in the third paragraph, verses 13 to 18, David meditates on the mystery of God's omnipotence, his almighty power and providence. God not only sees the invisible and penetrates the inaccessible, he mysteriously operates fully in every detail of David's being, right from beginning to end. So in verses 13 to 18, the next paragraph, this is what he says. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Fearfully and wonderfully made. That's how David beautifully puts it. That's how he describes the mystery of God's powerful handiwork in, in creating his inmost being, knitting him together in his mother's womb. You see, David here is looking back to the very beginning of his own personal existence, when God wove him together in a secret place. Of course, David knew nothing about genetics or embryology or DNA and chromosomes. He never saw the pulsing heart of a living fetus on an ultrasound screen. But he knew enough to be amazed how in nine months a, a human being could be fully formed inside a woman's uterus. And he knew that that miracle of life could only be explained by the sovereign providence of God. Now these particular verses in Psalm 139 become important to us in debates about abortion and embryo research. The questions like, when does a fetus become a human being? But we've got to see that here, under the inspiration of God, these are God's words as well as David's, David looks back to the very beginnings of his humanity. He traces it not from the moment of birth, not from some developmental stage of viability, but all the way back to the moment of conception. He says in verse 16a, your eyes saw my unformed body. He's talking about that tiny embryo. Now God saw him there not as just an impersonal collection of cells, but as a person who, though not yet self-conscious, would one day look back and say, that little embryo in there was me. That tiny, unformed little person was me. And there in the womb, God already had a plan for his life. So we see that David continues his thoughts here in the second part of verse 16. 
saying, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is a powerful reminder to us of the value that that God sets on us, even in our embryonic state, and that he already has a plan for our lives. As God just said again to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1 and verse 5a, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. So God is deeply involved in the whole process that leads to the birth of the baby. And God's word speaks here so plainly of the human identity of an unborn child. So to abort a process in which God is so deeply involved should require some pretty impressive reasons to do so. Well, for David, this mystery of God's power and his gracious providence, even from before birth, is something deeply touching to him. And so David responds in verses 17 and 18. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So David here realizes that God has written every line of code that went into his existence here. Millions and millions of tiny pieces of information programmed into his being uniquely. His his height, his eye color, his IQ, his temperament, his strengths, his weaknesses, it's all there. He's saying, Lord, if if I tried to list all the things you provided for me, they'd be more than the grains of sand on the seashore. He's saying, I'd I'd fall asleep counting them, and when I woke up, I'd have to go on counting because your thoughts toward me never stop. Every new day, your providence is still at work. Well, some people may feel that this idea of God's omniscience, his omnipresence and his omnipotence are like some kind of threat to our human freedom. But David says, no, in all my vulnerability, I find these truths to be a huge and precious comfort. I noticed that writer C.S. Lewis would agree with David. Lewis once wrote, saying, I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature that I could think of. For to have been born in God's thought and then made by God is the dearest, grandest, and most precious thing in all thinking. Think about it. Born in God's thought. Made by his hand. You were uniquely planned by God and then brought into being by God. And so David, like C.S. Lewis, is deeply touched and humbled by God's powerful provision for every little part of his existence. Well, David's words so far have expressed such wonder and and real spiritual sensitivity here that the, the abrupt change that now takes place in the next paragraph kind of shocks us and disturbs us. David suddenly turns from the greatness of God's thoughts to the vileness of God's enemies and the longing for justice. Listen to verses 19 to 22. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? 
I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Well, as Christians, we may be a bit shocked to read this sudden angry outburst on the part of David here. I mean, this psalm was going along so nicely, and then this? Well, we understand that we may have enemies. David certainly did. But didn't Jesus tell us, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you? Didn't he say himself from the cross about his enemies, Father, forgive them? though they do not know what they are doing. So how are we to understand these angry verses here? Well, David certainly did have his enemies. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about God's enemies. He's talking about those who hate God, who rebel against God, who revile God's name. And David's great concern here is for God's honor. It's not so much a hatred for godless men as it is a zeal for God. But we have to notice here, he doesn't talk about dealing with God's enemies himself, like he's going to punch them out. He recognizes that vengeance belongs to God. He says, Lord, it's your problem. Why don't you do something about it? Couldn't you just snuff out those wicked people? (laughs) Well, David was not perfect. He's impatient with God's, he's, he's, he's impatient with God's patience with sinners. He feels God's hatred for sin, but he doesn't yet feel God's love for sinners. You know, Jesus would have to come along later to demonstrate that kind of radical love, love for our enemies. But in the final two verses, Verses 23 to 24. David suddenly catches himself here in the midst of these angry thoughts. And he realizes that God's love is greater and more filled with grace and even more mysterious than he thought. So he now turns from his attack on the sin and evil of others around him to face whatever wrongs may lie within his own heart. He remembers that there's there's no fooling God, no escaping God if we're pretending to be something other than what we are. And so David prays in these two final verses, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David opens himself up here and invites God to examine the integrity of his own heart. He's saying, Lord, I I don't really understand this problem of evil or these people that treat you that way. I realize I don't always have the right answers. So Lord, search me and uncover any wickedness that lurks in my own heart and guide me in the way everlasting. The way everlasting is the way that leads to fullness of life. It's the way home to the Father's heart and to the intimacy he wants to have with us. So God is not the interfering and oppressive tyrant that some people fear that he is. He cared for us long before we even knew we existed. He formed us in the womb. He knows our frame. He fashions our days and he stays within reach. He searches us. He knows our every thought and word and action. And he searches us not because there's something hidden he doesn't know about, 
He knows the very worst about us. And yet, he wants us as his friends. He wants a relationship that will enable him to cleanse us and lead us in the way everlasting. This love of God is a mystery to us. It's a love that's beyond reason. But it means that we can follow David's lead here and invite God to search our own hearts. Because he already knows every detail about you. He still loves you anyway with an unfathomable love. So in Psalm 139, David meditates on these sublime mysteries of God. But there's one mystery that David never knew about. And for us, it's the greatest mystery of all. It's found in the words of the New Testament. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, says it this way. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The greatest mystery of all is that the invisible God so loved this broken world of ours that he sent his Son in the flesh, who was seen, who was touched, who lived amongst us, and who died in our place so that we might have everlasting life. So why not make David's prayer your prayer? Search me, God. Know my heart. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.